we read scripture this morning, we'd like to take this opportunity to introduce our new members. I would invite our new members to, uh, to join me on stage, specifically those new members who have recently completed the membership interview and who received an email this week that you would be coming up on stage. So if that's you, you've completed the membership interview, you got an email this week, would you come join me on stage? Hopefully we've got someone here. Yeah, there we go. Yeah, good. As they're making their way forward, just a couple of things. In our new members class, we, we ask questions like these, like why should, why should I join a local church? Does it really matter if I actually join a church? And isn't, isn't my personal relationship with Jesus what really matters? And I mean, those are great questions, and, and not surprising questions given the context in which we live, our individualistic culture, and, and even our natural tendency towards independence. Asking these questions provides a, a great opportunity to clarify God's priority of and purposes for the church. Here at GCF, we believe the scriptures are clear that God's specific purpose for his people are accomplished as individuals join a local church. They, they join themselves to and participate in local churches. And while all genuine believers are members of the church universal, the universal body of Christ, really we think that they are to, each, each believer is to express that through uh, membership in a specific local church. Well, if you have questions like, why should I join a local church? Does it really matter if I do that? I just invite you to attend our upcoming new members class. It's in a couple of weeks, January 26th and 27th. And if you come, you're going to hear six reasons why you should join and become a member of a local church. Well, with all those words, I would love to introduce you to our new members. Um, I'm going to come over here. Let's see if I can do this. What I need you to do this morning is just share your name, how long you've been at Grace Christian Fellowship, and if you're a member of a community group or um, maybe youth college ministry, you can, you can share that as well, okay? Yeah. Hello, I'm Jeremy Higgins. I've been here for, I think, four years and part of the Crossroads Youth Group. I'm Ethan Higgins. I've been here for four years. I'm part of the college group. I'm Lucas Owsley, and we're part of the Ulrich group, and we've been here about a year and a half. I'm Noelle Owsley. Same. I'm Zach Johnson. This is almost Bethany Johnson right now, Bethany Clark. We're not in a community group right now. Uh, we currently are having premarital counseling through the Myers as our ministry. And I've been going here for about three years or so when I've lived in the area. And then Bethany just started. Hi, I'm Doug. This is Liz. We've been attending for about five years. And we go to Pat and Jody McGlade's community group. Let's welcome them. Thank you very much. You can return to your seats. Again, we have that new members class 
January 26th and 27th. If you are planning on attending that, it would be really helpful if you RSVP on our website. And uh, again, that's Friday, January 26th and Saturday, January 27th. If you would stand for the reading of God's word. Our scripture reading this morning is from John chapter 18, verses 28 through 40, starting with John chapter 18, verse 28. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, what accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, if this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, do you say this of your own accord or did others say, to you, say it to you about me? Pilate answered, am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, so you are a king. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this purpose was I born and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Anyone, everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? After, this, he, after he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him, but you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Good morning. My name is Dave Farley. I'm one of the pastors here at GCF, and this morning we continue our series uh, through the Gospel of John, I'm going to pause once again and pray because I really uh, sense my need for God's grace and power this morning. So let's bow our heads, humble ourselves, and ask once again for God's help. Father, we come before the throne of grace this morning with boldness and confidence. Father, we confess that our hearts are often cold to your word. We confess that we have pockets of unbelief in our hearts and minds. Lord, we confess that we come this morning distracted by all kinds of cares and concerns. Father, we pray this morning that as we sit under your word that you would penetrate our hearts with truth. Father, I confess that I need your help this morning. I always need your help when I approach the task of preaching, but I'm especially aware of my need this morning for a variety of reasons that you know of. 
So Father, I pray that you would give me grace and power this morning to unfold the truths of Scripture for all of our hearts and minds. We pray all these things in Jesus' mighty name, amen. It was supposed to be a year of growth and learning and exploration. Amanda Knox hoped to experience the world beyond her middle-class West Seattle neighborhood and learn Italian. But what was supposed to be a dream year studying at a university in Italy turned into a nightmare. When Amanda's British roommate, Meredith Kircher, was murdered, Italian authorities leapt to the unlikely conclusion that Amanda and her friends committed the crime. Due to a faulty legal system and ignorance, Amanda was wrongfully convicted of murder in 2007 and then spent four years in an Italian jail. After eight years of court battle, she was finally and fully exonerated in 2015. Now, all this raises the question, why was Amanda Knox wrongfully convicted of the crime of murder? The answer is simple. The judge and jury thought they knew Amanda, but the reality was they hardly knew Amanda at all. And this brings us to John 18, 28 to 40. Jesus is on trial before Pontius Pilate, and just like Amanda, Jesus was unjustly tried and convicted, and the question is why? The answer is because Pilate and all those present at this trial thought they knew Christ, but the reality is they hardly knew who Christ was at all. And their ignorance of Christ's true identity is incredibly and eternally costly. Now, many today put Jesus Christ on trial, and they judge him and deem that he is either irrelevant or obnoxious or inconvenient or a troublemaker. And all that is based on ignorance. And that ignorance is incredibly costly. In fact, it has impact for all eternity. So I hope and pray this morning, as we think about this trial of Jesus, you and I come to the right conclusions about the identity of Jesus and don't draw the conclusions of Pilate and all those present. So who exactly is Jesus? What does this particular trial tell us about his identity? Who was he? Well, this trial indicates that he was more than a man. In fact, he was the perfect prophet, priest, and king. Now, those three offices are very significant because in the Old Covenant, there were only three offices, the office of prophet, priest, and king. And Jesus Christ fulfills all three offices perfectly, meaning all those offices pointed to him. So he's more than a man, he's the son of God, and he is the perfect prophet, priest, and king, and that's incredibly good news for us this morning. So as we look at this trial, let's look at those three offices of Christ, the office of prophet, priest, and king. That's who he is. That's his true identity. So first is the office of prophet. Look with me at John 18, 28 and following. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning, and they themselves did not enter the, the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, what accusation do you bring against this man? 
They answered him, if this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. So a little context here, as many of you know. Uh, so far in chapter 18, Jesus was betrayed by a friend, denied by another friend. He was mocked in a Jewish court, and now he is on trial before Pontius Pilate. Now, why is he in this place? Because the Jews hated Jesus with a passion. Because they were jealous of him, he brought conviction, and most importantly, he claimed to be God. And they all knew that in the Old Testament, anyone who claims to be God is guilty of the sin of blasphemy, which was punishable by death. But there was a problem. Uh, the Romans had taken away the Jews' ability to actually perform capital punishment, so they had no power to put Christ to death. So they got Pilate involved, hoping that they could convince Pilate that Jesus was guilty of a capital crime and that Pilate would have him murdered. And so they say to Pilate, Pilate, Jesus is claiming to be king, which is the crime of sedition, which was punishable by death in a Roman court. So they pawn Jesus off to Pilate, hoping that Pilate will give him a guilty verdict and have him put to death. But why is all this happening? Why are all these events transpiring? Verse 32. This, all this, was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Because Jesus Christ is a prophet without equal. He knows all things, including the future. And he predicted multiple times in the Gospel of John so far that he would die by being lifted up. That is by being crucified. Now, if the Jews had their way, he would have been put to death by stoning, brought down and stoned. But instead, to fulfill multiple Old Testament prophecies, Jesus would be condemned and crucified by the Romans, proving that Jesus knows all things, because he clearly predicted this multiple times in the Gospel of John. Here's the point. Christ, the great prophet, predicted the details of his gruesome and grisly death, and they unfolded exactly as he predicted they would, because he is the true and final and great and authoritative prophet. Now, not only does Christ predict every single, or, or, or know every single detail of history? Uh, he can predict it because he knows it. Now, it's not like this. It's not that Christ looks into the future and sees what's going to happen and decides how to react to what's happening. No. The reason why Jesus knows the future is because Jesus planned the future. He planned every single detail of history. If I do this motion right here, that motion was planned in the decrees of God in eternity past. Theologians call that meticulous providence. God, God is the perfect prophet because God knows the future, because God planned the future, which means that God is incredibly powerful. By the way, Theologians talk about it like this. If God knows all things, then the future is fixed. For instance, if God knows that tomorrow morning I'm going to have Wheaties for breakfast and not Cracker Jacks, do I have any option of having Cracker Jacks tomorrow for breakfast? 
No. Because God knows the future, which means the future is fixed. There's no other options. And that's because God planned the future, including his future, including his suffering and death at the hands of the Romans. Christ is the perfect prophet because he knows all things, because he planned all things. And that, my friends, is incredibly good news because that means he planned every single detail of your life, yet he's not the author of evil. And because he planned every detail of your life, he is able to use all things, all things, all things in your life for your good and his glory. All things. And if that's true, Christians should never, ever, ever complain or be anxious because their future is in God's hands. He planned it. He knows it. He can predict it. He is the perfect and final prophet. Let me ask you a question. When was the last time you grumbled or complained or were anxious? For me, it was within the last couple of hours. <laughs> but if God knows all things, if God has planned all things, we have no reason to ever be anxious or to ever complain, do we? Christ is the perfect prophet. He can predict the future because he planned the future. Therefore, you and I can trust him with every single detail of our lives. But it gets better. Not only is Jesus Christ the perfect prophet, he is also a majestic king, which brings us to the second point. Jesus the king. He's a prophet and he's a king. John 18, 33 and following so Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Now, instead of answering the question directly, Jesus asked the question. He's not trying to be evasive. He's not trying to avoid answering him. But he is um, redirecting, and he's very specifically wondering what uh, Pilate is asking, although he knows, but he's, he's asking for everyone present. Was Pilate asking the question from a Roman perspective? Will Christ set up a worldly kingdom opposed to Caesar? If so, Christ's answer is surely no. Or is Pilate asking from a Jewish perspective? Is Jesus the Messiah, the long-awaited king in the line of David? If so, Christ's answer is yes. Verse 35, Pilate answered him, am I a Jew? In other words, should I know about the intricacies of your Old Testament? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king? Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Now these verses raise several very important questions about a key theme in the Bible, and that is the kingdom of God. What exactly is the kingdom of God? This requires some explanation. 
The kingdom of God is the rule or redemptive reign of God exercised through King Jesus. When Jesus came the first time, he inaugurated or he established his kingdom. But it's not yet here in fullness. When Christ returns someday in power and glory and might, he will consummate his kingdom. Theologians call this inaugurated eschatology. All that means is Christ's kingdom has been inaugurated, but it has not yet come in fullness. Therefore, it's an already not yet reality, which means that we do see around us evidence of God's kingdom. Whenever someone bows the knee to Jesus, submits to his lordship, there the kingdom of God is present. Now, as I've mentioned many, many times in here, the best illustration to explain this uh, is the D-Day, V-E-Day illustration from a theologian named Oscar Coleman from the, I think from the, from the 60s. Anyways, he talks about it like this. So D-Day was a decisive battle in World War II. So on D-Day, the Allied powers won a, a, an incredible victory on the beaches of Normandy, which essentially secured the victory of all the battles uh, in Europe. But the victory wasn't finalized until VE, VE Day, that is Victory in Europe Day, which came many, many months later. But because of D-Day, the rest of the battle in Europe was a mop-up job. So in a similar sense, when Christ came the first time, he established his kingdom, which ensures that someday he will return and make all things right and all things new. And we live in between VE Day and D-Day as Christians. Now, you and I can enter into Christ's kingdom as we turn away from our sins and trust the king. And again, his kingdom is present everywhere. People bow the knee to King Jesus and submit to his rule and reign. But back to verse 36, Jesus says this, my kingdom uh, is not of this world. What in the world does he mean by that? This means several things. Christ's kingdom is not of this world because it is not connected to an earthly, political, or national entity. It is primarily, in its current phase, a spiritual kingdom. In other words, it is not a geopolitical entity like Rome, Russia, Romania, or the USA. You can't see it like you see a king's palace, a nation's wall, or the Pentagon. This means that our hope, my friends, must not rest in what happens this November. If your party wins or loses, Christ the King still reigns. And that's where our hope lies, not in the Democratic Party or the Republican Party. His, his kingdom is not of this world. In addition, Christ's kingdom is not of this world because it does not advance through violence or force like Rome did or like Russia is currently trying to do. The exact opposite is true. This kingdom always advances through humility and suffering and sacrifice and love. The weapons of this kingdom are not tanks and bombs and AK-47s. The weapons of this kingdom are prayer and preaching and love and lavish hospitality and generosity. 
This kingdom has, has been the greatest source of prosperity and peace in the history of the world. If you don't believe me, read the great book called Jesus Skeptic, where the author argues that Christianity has done the most good in the history of the world. Furthermore, Christ's kingdom is not this world because Christ is an incredibly, unbelievably humble king. No one has stepped as low as Jesus. He left heaven and was born in the squalor of a stable, lived in poverty, and died on a Roman cross. There is no king who's ever been as humble as our king, King Jesus. His kingdom is not of this world. One author describes his experience at a Manila airport two decades ago. He says, as our plane arrived in Manila from Bangkok, we were informed we would have to remain on the plane for an hour because our arrival conflicted with the arrival of the Prime Minister of Sri Lanka. As our plane taxied to a stop, I witnessed a memorable sight, especially striking since I had just come from refugee camps in Thailand. Assembled on the runway, in formation, were several hundred official welcomers, along with Philippine President and Mrs. Marcos. A platoon of navy-clad honor guards wore shining gold pith helmets. Next to them was another platoon dressed in forest green and mustard with white gloves and hats. Then came a crimson and gold uniform band, and finally a group of resplendent and resplendent in white naval uniforms. Add to the scene swaying native dancers in chartreuse and purple, a baby elephant clad in scarlet, a long red carpet, a descending jet, a 21-gun salute, and several uh, gleaming black stretch limos, and you get the picture. Worldly kingdoms, like this one, are marked by affluence, power, prestige, and privilege. Christ's kingdom is the exact opposite. It is not of this world. Christ's kingdom is an upside-down kingdom. In Christ's kingdom, you gain your life when you lose it, Matthew 10. You receive when you give away freely. You are exalted when you humble yourself. Your weakness is your strength. You rule others by humbly serving them. If you want to be first, you must be last. Instead of taking vengeance on your enemies, you must forgive your enemies. This is the kingdom ethic. And does this ethic describe your life and my life? Christ's kingdom is not of this world. But this does not mean that Christ does not demand total surrender from everyone everywhere. Christ is the King of kings and Lord of lords. He knows all things. He controls all things. He created all things. He is the self-existent, eternal one who has no beginning and no end. How does that work? He is utterly unique and infinite. All things, including you and the chair you're sitting on, depend on him for existence and sustainability. He is transcendent, meaning he is not simply bigger than us, although he is. He is on a whole different plane of existence than us and the universe he created. 
His sovereign plan will never, ever be thwarted. Therefore, he must not be trifled with. King Jesus refuses to be your hobby, like golf or gardening or gunsmithing, something that you do for a few hours a week for personal satisfaction. King Jesus demands and deserves total surrender. Let me ask you a question in light of this. Does King Jesus have this kind of weight in your life? If he doesn't, repent. David Wells argues that King Jesus has become weightless for most evangelicals in America. He writes this, the fundamental problem in the evangelical world today is not an inadequate technique, insufficient organization, or antiquated music. The fundamental problem is that God rests too inconsequentially upon the church. His truth is too distant. His grace is too ordinary. His judgment is too benign. His gospel too easy. And his Christ too common. Speaking of King Jesus, another author writes this. Since the universe is his, not ours, and we, were not created, and, and we were created to know, glorify, and obey him, he will not allow us to marginalize him to the periphery of our lives. Which again raises the question, is King Jesus on the periphery of your life? Or is there currently an area of your life that you refuse to give to him? A relationship, a sensual pleasure, a refusal to forgive someone, a refusal to evangelize your friends, a grumbling heart, a sum of money you refuse to give, time you refuse to give to Christ or his church. The Dutch statement, statesman and theologian Abraham Kuyper famously uttered these words 100 years ago. There is not one square inch of the universe in which Christ the King does not cry, mine. Every square inch of your life and my life belongs to King Jesus for multiple reasons. He's the King, he's the Creator, and he purchased you with his blood. Again, are we submitting every single area of our lives to King Jesus, the benevolent ruler of the universe. Here's the good news. Christ the King is the best possible king you can imagine. He's good. He only asks us to do things that glorify his name and lead to our eternal joy. So why in the world would you and I refuse to submit to him? Most surprisingly of all, this king died to secure the eternal happiness of his subjects, which brings us to the final office. First, Jesus the prophet, second, Jesus the king, and third, Jesus the priest. Jesus the priest. In the Old Testament, 
priests sacrificed animals on behalf of Israel. As the perfect priest, Jesus does not sacrifice animals. He sacrifices himself as the perfect lamb of God. In other words, he's the perfect priest and he is the sacrificial priest. Let's look at both of those categories for a moment. Jesus is a perfect priest, John 18, 38. Pilate said to him, what is truth? After he said this, he went back outside of the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him that is Jesus. Pilate recognized that Jesus was not guilty of anything. Jesus Christ was innocent. In fact, Pilate states this three times in this particular story. Jesus was the only perfect person to ever live. He was the perfect priest, and that's incredibly good news for us, as most of you know, and that's because even though we are unperfect, even though you and I sin every day in thought, word, and deed, if you're a Christian, you are robed in the perfect righteousness of Jesus, your unerring, perfect priest. He's the perfect priest. In addition, Jesus is a sacrificial priest. Look with me at verse 39 and 40. But you have a custom, says Pilate, that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. This requires a little bit of background. The custom of pardoning a criminal just before the Passover feast was rooted in the history of the Passover. So many of you know the Passover was meant to celebrate the fact that in 1500 BC roughly, uh, Jesus delivered or pardoned the Israelites. They were in bondage to the Egyptians and he poured out his grace and mercy and displayed his power and delivered them um, from slavery. And on the day of Passover, he pardoned them from guilt. So every year at Passover, around this time, the Jews would release or pardon one prisoner to commemorate what Christ did for them many, many years beforehand. But the, the irony here is the Jews want to pardon Barabbas, who was a scoundrel. The other Gospels teach that Barabbas was guilty of all kinds of things, robbery, insurrection, and murder. So summary, Christ, the perfect spotless Lamb of God, the perfect priest, was condemned to die, and the criminal, Barabbas, was set free. And my friends, this is the heart and soul of Christianity. You and I deserve to die. We deserved to suffer and die on a cross, but we've been set free. Now, at this moment, what was the perspective of Barabbas? Matthew 27 sheds some light on what may have happened to Barabbas in these moments. He was being held captive literally about 1,500 feet away from where Christ was on trial. And most scholars doubt that he could hear Pilate's voice, but more than likely, he heard the roar of the crowd as they were screaming and yelling and chanting. This was a large crowd gathered on the Passover. One scholar describes what may have happened during Pilate's dialogue with the crowd. Pilate says this, which of the two should I release to you? Crowd yells, Barabbas, Pilate. What shall I do then with Jesus, who is called Christ? 
crowd, crucify him. Pilate, why? What crime has he committed? Crowd shouting all the more, crucify him. Pilate, washing his hands, said, I am innocent of this man's blood. It is your responsibility. Crowd, let his blood be on us and on our children. But what did Barabbas actually hear? He only heard the crowd because he was, again, 1,500 feet away from this particular trial. So this is what Barabbas heard, more than likely, in his jail cell. Barabbas, crucify him. Crucify him. Let his blood be on us and our children. He only heard what the crowd was shouting. The same scholar writes this in light of that. As hardened as he was, Barabbas must have grown faint. He may have started, stared at the palms of his hands in growing horror of the awaiting agony. He had seen crucifixions. He knew their incessant agony. He heard the sound of the key in the lock, felt even greater terror, and suddenly he was released from his chains and told he was free. He was probably in a daze when he emerged into the sunlight. Slowly the truth unfolded. Jesus Christ was dying in his place. All of us are just like Barabbas. We're lawbreakers. We break God's law every day in thought, word, and deed. We are in the dungeon awaiting final judgment. Barabbas is not the only person uh, in history who could say that Jesus Christ took his place on the cross. All of us deserve to be in Barabbas' place. Yet here we are, alive and free and forgiven and adopted, all because Jesus decided to humble himself as the perfect priest and be sacrificed in our place so that all the guilt of all of our sins could be removed. The guilty walk away scot-free and the perfect priest is murdered or sacrificed in our place. Our punishment is paid our guilt is removed. We are clothed in righteousness. The Father's wrath is completely satisfied. And we are friends of God all because of Christ, the perfect priest who suffered and died in our place. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says it like this. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God of God. 1 Peter 2:24 Speaking of Christ, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Well, back to where we started. An Italian court found Amanda Knox guilty of a crime that she did not commit. Why? The judge and jury assumed that they knew the real Amanda Knox, but they didn't, and the results were nearly catastrophic. 
Many today, maybe you this morning, have put Christ on trial. And you have judged him inappropriately because you have insufficient evidence or knowledge of his person and his work. But this text clearly indicates that Jesus Christ was no ordinary man. He is the true and final prophet. He is the majestic king. And he is the suffering priest. Let's pray.